week, Judge McMahon certifies decision in validating third-party releases for appeal to Second Circuit. Reorg analyzes Smile Direct's debt-raising options and how the EPA's new renewable fuel standards impact PBF Energy's renewable energy credit and emissions obligations. Puerto Rico monolines seek to overturn dismissal of suit against bond-issuing banks. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's deep dive, Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg's America's Covenants, and Julian Boulan, also with our America's Covenants team, join me to discuss the continuing erosion of lender protections and credit agreements, including voting protections and most favored nation rights, IP transfer prohibitions, and restrictions on raising structurally senior debt. It's Friday, January 7th. Smile Direct Club Inc. could seek to raise structurally senior operating company level debt to extend the company's liquidity run, according to an analysis by Reorg. The company has historically burned substantial amounts of free cash flow, including more than $775 million cumulatively from fiscal year 2018 through 2020, and approximately $215 million for the 12 months ended September 30th. With a liquidity balance of about $308 million as of September 30th, the company's current run rate of LTM free cash flow burn would imply less than two years of liquidity runway, which could require the company to raise new money capital in the absence of a significant improvement in operations. Smile Direct Club's 0% senior unsecured convertible notes due 2026 traded lower by approximately 20 points to 50% of par value on November 11th after the release of third quarter 2021 earnings on November 8th, 2021. The convertible notes have since continued to trade lower by more than 10 points, quoted around 39.4% of par value as of Monday, January 3rd, according to Solve Advisors. The convertible notes were issued at par value in February 2021. Additionally, since mid-November, the common stock has traded lower by more than 35%, near its all-time low, to $2.61 per share as of January 3rd, implying a market capitalization of about $1 billion, which is still well in excess of the implied market value of the convertible notes. While Reorg has no current knowledge as to whether the company is planning to seek new capital, our America's team undertook an illustrative analysis that outlines potential debt financing options for the company, including the company's ability to incur structurally senior debt at the OPCO level. If you would like to access Reorg's in-depth coverage of SmileDirect, please reach out to a Reorg representative. On Friday, U.S. District Judge Colleen McMahon decided to certify to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit her December 16th ruling overturning Purdue's confirmation order and invalidating third-party releases of the Sacklers. In motions filed last weekend, the debtors and the Mortimer and Raymond Sackler families emphasized the importance of the Second Circuit weighing in on the district court's ruling as soon as possible. Purdue said an immediate interlocutory appeal would move the parties closer to resolving the trapped living cases in order to put value to work to abate the opioid crisis and compensate victims. Earlier this week, appellant states Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, Rhode Island, Vermont, along with the District of Columbia, filed an opposition to the motions to certify the third-party release ruling. The state said the certification would jeopardize the party's chances of reaching a settlement through ongoing mediation. The state say the Sacklers would sooner pursue an appeal than negotiate enhanced consideration that would make the plan, as modified, a workable solution. The states warned that the likelihood of reaching a settlement would become even more remote if the appeal were certified. This week, Reorg analysts looked at how the EPA's new renewable fuel standards could impact PBF Energy's renewable energy credit and emissions obligations. The EPA's December 7, 2021 proposed renewable fuel volume targets, which include a retroactive cut to the 2020 finalized rule, are largely similar to the September 22nd leaked volume cited in multiple reports that coincided with significant renewable identification number, or RAN, market price relief. 
in combination with the EPA's November 17th proposed rule, which extends certain renewable fuel standard or RFS deadlines, the rules afford PBF Energy additional flexibility in addressing its over $700 million of accrued September 30th and future incurred RFS liabilities for compliance years 2020 and 2021. However, to the extent that the meaningfully higher proposed 2022 compliance year targets represent the floor for future standards, and to the extent that RIN pricing remains consistent with recent trading levels, PBF must generate greater cash going forward through pre-RFS-adjusted EBITDA or parent distributions. Reorg estimates that the 2022 proposed volumes at December 30th RIN prices would cost the company $767 million to $804 million annually, resulting in negative free cash flow and including cash interest and capital expenditures unless the company can increase total long-term pre-RFS-adjusted EBITDA and parent contributions to above approximately $1.5 billion. In Puerto Rico news on Tuesday, MBIA and National Public Finance Guarantee filed a motion for reconsideration asking a Commonwealth Appeals Court to rethink its dismissal of a lawsuit brought by the monoline insurers against major banks that underwrote billions of Puerto Rico bond issues. MBIA and National contend that their lawsuit presents the only opportunity that Puerto Rico courts will have to adjudicate on the merits the corresponding liability of defendant banks for Puerto Rico's financial crisis which precipitated its bankruptcy, the pastor's promessa, and the appointment of the Fiscal Oversight Board. MBIA and National insist that they never allege that its, their claims are based on an allegation of guilt or negligence, but rather that the underwriter banks failed in their obligation to investigate the veracity and correctness of the information contained in the official statements for the bond issuances. Separately, Governor Pedro Pierre Lucy's administration proposed through its draft Commonwealth fiscal plan to assume the pension obligation costs of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority starting in 2023, according to a December 30th letter that outlined several needed revisions to the fiscal plan proposal. The administration's draft fiscal plan revision also estimates that the Commonwealth will have to pay $2.1 billion in additional compensation costs tied to 2,991 prepper employees who transferred to roles in the Commonwealth government rather than working for Luma Energy, which assumed management of prepper's transmission and distribution system in June. Top red stories this week included DBMP certainteed stipulate to amended asbestos claim funding agreement to address concerns over Texas two-step strategy, Virginia District Court previews invalidation of Asena third-party plan releases, at oral arguments, judge says pretty clear releases are invalid, also see Stern v. Marshall violation, Western District of North Carolina upholds best wall litigation injunction protecting non-debtor affiliates as part of debtor's Texas two-step case strategy, Malincrot in productive discussions with CuraScript to continue Octar distribution agreement without pre-petition indemnification provision. Deal could resolve suit requesting antitrust findings. And now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning all. Welcome to 2022. Looks to be a light week next week, but that won't last. Monday, January 10th, an initial case conference on all-year holdings and earnings from Albertsons. Tuesday, January 11th, a hearing in Brazos Electric, specifically their motion for judgment on ERCOT's claims pleading. Wednesday, January 12th, a hearing in Cedril, oral arguments in a matter related to PG&E. Thursday, January 13th, the UMB stay relief hearing, adequate protection hearing, and exclusivity extension hearing in Stoneway Capital. And Friday, January 14th, a discovery conference and motion to dismiss in LTL management. And that's all from me. Back to New York. For this week's Deep Dive, Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg's America's Covenants, and Julian Boulan, also with our America's Covenants team, join me to discuss the continued erosion of lender protections and credit agreements, including voting protections, most favored nations' rights, IP transfer prohibitions, and restrictions on raising structurally senior debt. 
welcome to another installment in our deep dive series. Uh, joining me today are Peter Washkowitz, head of America's Covenants at Reorg, and Julian Ballon, also with our America's Covenants team. And Peter's going to be discussing with us some recent trends and the continuing erosion of lender protections and credit agreements. And we're going to look at things like voting provisions, most favored nations protections, IP transfer prohibitions, and asset sales sweeps. So, um, Peter, just can you, would you mind just kind of setting the table in terms of background and kind of the general themes about what's going on with these kind of things? Yeah, sure. So first, uh, great to be back on the podcast. It's been it's been too long. Um, so for you know for at least the last five years, um, you know we as a as a covenant service have always been kind of writing articles about uh, how lender protections have have been eroded, and um, you know all these debt documents provide uh, significant flexibility for companies, and you know at first it was just kind of the expansion of capacities in in, in debt baskets and dividend baskets, um, and you know just the the size and the the, the size of the baskets and the conditions to access them. Um, we're both becoming more and more company friendly. Um, that trend obviously has continued, but but you know, I'd say in the last year or two, um, you're seeing more kind of innovations in 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 the terms themselves and 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 kind of the the consequences and the impact of of these new aggressive terms aren't immediately kind of you know probably not even noticed by a lot of market participants, but. You know, even even if they're noticed, I think the consequences of some of them may not be readily understood until kind of it's too late. Um, and so, a lot of these terms are really interesting because once you think about them, it, some of them just are, are 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 crazy, and you don't really understand the rationale with how lenders or you know bondholders would permit them. But we're seeing them with such frequency that they're even these terms are now becoming kind of more and more market standard. So, you know, for, for the past couple of years, you know, when I've been reviewing credit agreements, I, I always have my eyes open for net short lender provisions, which essentially, um, you know, disenfranchise lenders who might have a CDS position uh, and, and end up being net short in uh, a particular lending facility. But, um, you know, from the last couple of conversations I've had with you recently, I understand that we've seen some new provisions that are appearing that may further erode um, the voting rights of of certain lenders. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So there, there are kind of three provisions, but there's one uh, overriding provision, which was, um, I've only seen it in one agreement so far, so I wouldn't call it a trend. But um, from what I've heard, the provision made it through to the execute copy of the credit agreement. So I would not be surprised if we begin seeing it more and more in, in private loans. Um, so Prior to this provision, kind of the way the amendment process worked is if a company wanted to get an amendment, it would, um, you know, it would distribute the proposed amendment to all of its lenders and it needed to get um, a majority consent from the lenders. So, um, I, you know, if I were a lender, I would get the, the proposed amendment. And if I did not consent to it or I just I, I didn't respond, um, my portion of the uh, my loans would be would be uh, marked as you know having uh, not consented to it. So then they would need to kind of you know still receive majority consent from the rest of the lenders. Um, this new provision in in this credit agreement kind of turned that default uh, mechanic kind of uh, on its head. And and what it does is it says that um, any lender who does not respond to a proposed amendment within ten business days. Um, their loans are ignored for purposes of majority consent. So what that means is, um, you know, let's say there is a, a, a hundred million dollar loan, and I have ten million dollars of that loan. 
um, and the borrower wants to to um, amend the credit agreement, it sends out the proposed amendment. If I do not respond within 10 days, um, then the outstanding loans for purposes of the amendment are going to be reduced to 90 million because my 10 million are going to be ignored. And as a result, majority consent will be lenders with more than 45 million of, of the loan rather than uh, the 50 million, which would include uh, my loan. So it, 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 it's a very aggressive provision in that it requires lenders to proactively respond yes or no to an amendment rather than, um, you know, unless I, unless I respond with a yes, I'm a no. Um, and, and so you can see how this could be taken um, you know, it gives it gives borrowers a lot more flexibility just because every lender then kind of will be counted or uh, ignored for amendment purposes. Right. So every lender that doesn't respond, basically, instead of being counted as a no vote is sort of equally counted as a yes or no vote, which is obviously giving an advantage to the yes voting lenders. Yeah, exactly. It just makes it it makes it that much easier uh, for for borrowers to to pass through uh, an amendment because lenders don't respond. Those loans are not even counted anymore for purposes of of you know what constitutes the the majority threshold. Um, so so that that's kind of the the, the biggest um, the most aggressive provision in in in, um, in the in the voting mechanics that I've seen. Um, the other two are are, are are you know a lot more straightforward. Uh, the first one is that um, lenders holding 66 and two thirds percent of the loans uh, were, were required to accelerate uh, following event of default. Um, that's in contrast to the majority consent uh, to accelerate, which is um, virtually a universal threshold. So, um, you know, just requiring 66 and two thirds uh, just makes it that much harder for lenders to be able to accelerate debt uh, following an event of default. Um, obviously that takes away um, some of each lender's protections, just given that um, if they want to accelerate, they need to get that many more lenders on board uh, to accelerate. Um, and the third provision is uh, we had seen this in a few recent Blackstone bond issuances. Um, this credit agreement uh, that we're talking about was not issued by a Blackstone uh, portfolio group, but we saw um, this. It, it's a 20% voting threshold uh, cap that was in the bond that was in Blackstone bonds that we saw in this credit agreement. And what that does is it allows the borrower to cap any one lender's um, uh, voting uh, voting size to 20%. So um, again, in a $100 million loan, if I own $30 million of the loans, um, the borrower can decide, can cap my, my, uh, my voting uh, percentage to 20%. And ignore my other ten percent. Uh, ignore the other ten percent of my loan. So, um, what it does is it just it, it it reduces the amount of influence any one lender can have in the amendment process by capping their vote to twenty percent of uh, of their loans. Right. Well, that's yeah, that's pretty extraordinary. It obviously disincentivizes any single lender from um, you know amassing too large of a position in uh, a particular name because obviously their their voting rights are going to be cut off. Right, that's exactly um, that's exactly the point of it too. So yeah, I, I agreed with uh, with the conclusion, and uh, yeah, so so taking all three of these were in the same credit agreement, which which makes it just a little crazier. Mm -hmm. um, again, I heard that all three of these made it into the executed version, um, and so you know if we see these provisions make it uh, into more and more credit agreements, um, it, it's just a complete erosion of of lenders' kind of base 
or fundamental voting rights. Right. And well, I mean, as it seems to be the case that, you know, these aggressive terms that pop up in the private markets inevitably make their way into public documents. So um, we'll, we'll obviously be keeping our eyes out for um, for those in the future. Yep. All right, great. Um, well, so let's, uh, moving away from voting provisions then, uh, David, did you uh, have anything? Yeah, um, I wanted to ask about, you know, old favorite, the MFN protections, um, most favorite nations protections. And, you know, there's, there's generally th- like several, di- three different dimensions that these move around in, the pricing difference, the length and the scope. So Peter, you know, I, I, you, would you like to talk about some recent, uh, some recent, you know, changes in, in, these, in these types of provisions? Yeah, sure. So, um, so ideally, uh, what, what the, the MFN uh, protection uh, protects initial lenders against borrowers uh, incurring additional parry debt at a higher coupon. Um, the, the the most ideal version for lenders is that they get fifty basis points of MFN protection with no sunset. And what that means is that uh, if my loans are are priced at four uh, percent, and the borrower incurs additional parry term loans. At five percent, uh, the fifty basis points of MFN provision will require the borrower to increase the pricing on my four percent loans to four and a half percent, so that um, my loans are never priced more than fifty basis points less than any uh, than any uh, additional parry term loans that the borrower uh, incurs. So um, over the last five years, we we've kind of seen the MFN protection eroded. Uh, first, in terms of the amount, so the 50 basis points um, has been slowly increasing to 75 or even 100 basis points. Um, there, it, it's been uh, limited in terms of uh, in terms of time. So the MFN protection, um, whereas it, it used to just kind of uh, um, apply throughout the life of the loan, now only applies from you know for maybe six to 12 months, sometimes 18 months, um, and then. And then the third way that it has been weakened has been in the types of term loans that the MFN protection applies to. Um, usually, incremental debt baskets provide for um, you know a fixed amount, which is based on the greater of uh, a fixed amount and a percent of EBITDA. And then it also provides additional debt based on uh, compliance with the pro forma first lien leverage test. Uh, we've seen uh, we've seen a, a number of MFN provisions recently only applied to either the fixed amount or the uh, the leverage-based amount. Um, so that obviously gives the borrower a little more flexibility because if it can incur debt under the basket to which the MFN does not apply, it does not need to bump up any pricing for its existing term loan tranches. Um, where I've seen uh, kind of the most egregious form of an aggressive MFN protection is um, and I'm trying not to make this complicated since this is uh, it's all over voice and, and there's no kind of uh, presentation materials. But um, let, let's say you have a term loan basket that allows uh, incremental debt not to exceed the greater of $100 million and 10% of EBITDA uh, plus additional amounts um, in compliance with a five times uh, first lien leverage test. We've seen credit agreements that, that uh, only provide lenders with MFN protection if the borrower incurs uh, parry incremental debt under the fixed basket in excess of the greater of 100 million and 10% of EBITDA. So you see what that does, that you have a fixed basket that allows incremental debt not to exceed 100 million and 10% of EBITDA. 
and the MFN protection only applies to incremental debt incurred under that basket in excess of 100 million and 10% of EBITDA, which of course the basket does not even permit. So um, it's, it's literally just MFN protection in name only because the only way that uh, lenders would ever receive MFN protection is if the company breached the incremental debt provisions themselves and incurred more debt than the basket actually allowed. So it's, so it's totally illusory at that point. C- completely. And um, you know, we, we, we saw this once or twice um, I, I, in the middle of 2021. I've now seen three or four agreements in the last two months that, that have the same kind of formulation. So um, either you know, people are not, are not understanding uh, that the protection is illusory or they, they, they just don't care. I have a feeling it's probably the former, but it, it's just, it, it's, it's phenomenal how many times this provision is now appearing uh, more and more. And it literally is, is no MFN protection at all. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you at what point, right? Are these, are they, are MFN scaled back so much that they are just, they're just decorative and they're not, they don't actually do anything, but it sounds like what you're describing, we've reached that point, at least with these provisions. Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, even where you have a pretty decent MFN protection, if it only applies for six months, um, you know, even in that case, you know, borrowers can wait out six months after closing, and then and then there's just no MFN protection anyway. So, so um, you know, at least there, you know, yeah, you have six months of protection, but under under this new formulation, yeah, you, you've you've completely passed the point of of any protection. All right. Well, okay. So let's, I mean, let's move on down the line toward uh, other illusory types of protections. And these, I guess these next batch would be material IP transfer prohibitions, right? Which were, I think all the rage, or there was a big response to these after J. Crew, right? And I think, and there's, I think there's two kinds that, that you wanted to talk about. It's kind of like this one where there's a sort of triangulation to get around the restrictions and then using the concept of permitted investments. Oh uh, yeah, so um, so you're right. So ever since J Crew, uh, you know, investors have always been focused on a company's ability to transfer material IP to unrestricted subs. Um, the risk there is that once you transfer assets to an unrestricted subsidiary, um, that because that subsidiary is not restricted by any debt documents, it can do whatever it wants with the transferred assets. So. Um, you know, in J. Crew's case, J. Crew transferred some IP to an unrestricted sub. The lenders' liens on on that transferred IP were were automatically terminated, and uh, the unrestricted subsidiary uh, was able to kind of raise debt uh, against that IP, um, and the lenders had kind of no claim on it. So, so it, 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 this the, this unrestricted sub transfers have been a very big focus and continue to be. Um, and, you know, in the beginning of, of COVID, we saw a lot of new bond issuances, particularly that had some, for, some form of material IP transfer protect, protections. And, you know, we're, we're still seeing um, certainly more than in the past uh, of credit agreements that have some kind of, uh, you know, prohibitions on, on material IP transfers. However, kind of like the MFN protection, um, it really almost is, is kind of protection in name only. Um, you know, one one example of that is um, in in uh, Sovos Brands uh, uh, June eight June eighth twenty twenty one credit agreement. Um, it 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 uh, it had prohibitions against loan parties' ability to transfer material IP to unrestricted subsidiaries. So it said that um, loan parties were not allowed to transfer 
any material IP that they owned to an unrestricted subsidiary. Um, so that sounds like a very good protection. You know, there, there are no kind of exceptions to that. Um, so it, it seems like it's a very strong and uh, and and uncircumventable protection. However, the protection only applies to the loan parties, which which is defined as the borrower and the uh, subsidiary guarantors. Uh, it does not prohibit non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. So think the company's foreign subsidiaries. Um, it does not restrict them from transferring material IP to unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, in that context, when, when you also factor in that Sovos' credit agreement permits loan parties to, uh, to make unlimited transfers to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, you can see that that uh, material IP protection is, is, again, completely illusory because uh, you know, a subsidiary guarantor, guarantor can just transfer 100% of its material IP to a non-guarantor restricted subsidiary, um, which is not restricted by those material IP prohibitions, and thus can transfer all of its material IP then to the unrestricted subsidiary. So um, a protection in name only that is very easy to, to get around. And, and, and it's made easy because um, of unlimited transfers within the restricted group, including um, uh, non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. Um, the, second the second kind of uh, illusory protection is um, in a lot of credit agreements these days, they're being drafted like high yield bonds uh, where there is both the concept of a permitted investment and a restricted investment. And um, restricted investments are uh, included in the definition of restricted payments um, and permitted investments are just kind of a, a group of investments that are just not restricted. So um, we've seen two or three credit agreements that have been drafted like uh, high yield bonds that had restrictions against, um, against the borrower transferring a material IP to unrestricted subsidiaries through uh, as restricted investments. This one was a lot more kind of in your face because, you know, it, it explicitly said through restricted investments and um, it, it definitely did not say um, through permitted investment. So all that did was it limited the company's ability uh, to transfer uh, material IP to unrestricted subs um, to those baskets that were permitted investments, but not restricted investments. It's a, it's a very wonky concept. But, but at the end of the day, all that means is um, if you had three baskets as permitted investments that you could use for material IP transfers, and two restricted investment baskets that you could also use for material IP transfers, those restrictions only prohibited those two restricted investment baskets, but not the three permitted investment baskets from being used for material uh, material IP transfers. I, I know you must be very, very confused, but um, but just uh, take my word for it that, that um, in, in both of these situations, there were material IP transfer uh, prohibitions, which look good, uh, on their face, but if you just think about it for a little, they they are completely uh, toothless. Okay, well, well, Peter, Peter, this is Julian. Actually, just just to go back to basics a little bit and maybe clarify some of that confusion. Um, can, can you explain what you mean when you say that a credit agreement is drafted like a high yield bond? Yeah, so um, high yield bonds uh, have a debt covenant and they have a restricted payment covenant. The restricted payment covenant uh, includes restrictions on dividends, uh, prepayments of certain restricted debt and restricted investments. Um, credit agreements historically have had a debt covenant, a restricted payment covenant that covers dividends and equity buybacks, 
a separate investment basket and a separate prepayment uh, covenant. I'm sorry, a separate investment covenant and a separate prepayment covenant. Um, recently, the credit credit agreements are now being drafted to only include a uh, a debt covenant and a restricted payment covenant that covers restricted payments, investments, and prepayments. So. Um, it you know there's there's nothing inherently different uh, in either one of of those formattings. It's just that um, you know if it, it, where you have a credit agreement drafted like a high yield bond, you just need to watch out for the interplay between permitted investments and restricted payments because those are kind of two different concepts that both allow for potential value leakage. Right. And, and in addition, so in a high yield, I'm sorry, in a credit agreement that's drafted like a high yield bond, though, restricted payment capacity can be used for more than just dividends and share buybacks, right? They can, it, like a general RP basket, for example, could be used for investments, where under a, a traditional credit agreement structure, that, that wouldn't be the case. Exactly right. Yep. All right. So, um, so moving on to uh, sort of the, the next space where we're seeing erosion in uh, credit agreement protections, uh, let, let's talk about the ability of uh, companies to use their debt covenant carve-outs to incur structurally senior debt. Uh, by, by structurally senior debt, I mean debt that can be incurred by non-guarantor subsidiaries that um, be, because that box doesn't guarantee um, the, the debt provided by the credit agreement, uh, it ends up being uh, senior to the debt provided by the, the, the credit agreement. So um, typically, ratio debt provisions contain subcaps on the ability of non-guarantors to, to use that ratio debt basket. But um, Peter, I think that you've seen some situations where, um, you know, some, some other situations where we've seen erosions around uh, uh, companies' abilities to use ratio debt to incur structurally senior debt. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure if this is if this is new or it's just kind of popping up more, and I'm noticing it. I I, I probably should know that, but um, I, I I don't think I don't think it's been around for a while. But um, I've seen a few recent credit agreements um, where the ratio debt basket is structured as it's a basket that permits debt um, as long as uh, if the debt is uh, secured on a pari passu basis. If the debt is secured on a junior lien basis, or if the debt is unsecured, uh, the borrower um, and its restricted subsidiaries need to meet specified uh, first lien secured or total leverage tests. Um, you got to understand that what's important about the way it's drafted is the basket permits debt, but then subjects it to uh, specific leverage tests depending on if the debt is is pari, junior lien, or unsecured. Rather than saying, um, you know, you can incur debt if you can meet this test, um, and and what's important there is that debt debt incurred by non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries almost always can be secured by their assets. Um, now, because those assets are not pledged, um, any debt secured by non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries would not constitute uh, pari debt. It would not constitute junior lien debt. Um, because those are only debt that are uh, secured by collateral assets, and obviously it would not be unsecured debt because it is secured by something. Um, so the way, so so what happens here is if you do not have a cap on the amount of ratio debt that can be incurred by non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries, effectively non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries can incur an unlimited amount of secured structurally senior ratio debt because they don't need to meet any leverage test. 
again, because that debt is not going to be secured on a parry basis, so they don't need to meet the first lien test. It's not going to be secured on a junior lien basis, so they don't need to meet the secured leverage test. And it's not going to be unsecured, so they don't need to meet a total leverage test. Um, it, this isn't this doesn't uh, crop up in a lot of agreements because most credit agreements do include they either include a cap on the amount of ratio debt that non-guarantor restricted subs can incur, can incur, can incur, or they subject or they say that if the debt is unsecured or secured by non-collateral assets, they need to meet a total leverage test. But where the ratio of debt basket only accounts for parry, junior lien, or unsecured, that's where you run into the risk of accidentally allowing unlimited non-guarantor restricted subsidiary debt. Right. Got it. So in, in the case of this type of provision that you're talking about, which I think we saw appear in the credit agreement of Tenable Inc., um, the, the solution would have been then to say for this prong that allows um, you know, uh, leverage-based debt to be incurred on an unsecured basis, what, what the provision really should have tested was you know, debt that can be incurred on an unsecured basis or on a basis, or, or, or on a basis that is not secured by the collateral. Yeah, exactly. Or you just could have said non-guarantors can only incur, let's say, $20 million of ratio debt. Now there, they still wouldn't need to meet a leverage test, but um, they would they would be capped at $20 million. The way you have it is, is the better way, because then you're, you're, anyone that's, that incurs ratio debt needs to meet a leverage test, because, um, anyone, because there's going to be one that's going to be applicable to that type of debt. But um, you know, at worst, at least just cap the amount of non-guarantor restricted subsidiary ratio debt, um, even if they don't need to meet a leverage test, just so you ensure that there is some kind of limit on that debt. Because again, it, as you said, it's structurally senior debt. It's secured by unencumbered assets. Um, and so you know, if the whole structure goes, goes belly up, um, if there's a lot of secured structurally senior debt in the structure, that's just uh, you know less assets for the first lien lenders to have any type of claim on. Right, right. So, well, in addition to this sort of um, unique uh, issue in, in Tenable's credit agreement, are, are you also seeing it uh, be the case in other credit agreements that ratio debt baskets don't have any non-guarantor subcap whatsoever? Uh, so not many, uh, you know, despite all of these aggressive terms, we're, I'm, I, you know, I've seen uh, generally there usually is going to be some kind of cap on non-guarantor restricted subsidiary ratio debt. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a handful obviously that don't. Um, and we certainly point that out in our, in our analyses, but yeah, I'd say for the, for the most part, uh, there still generally is a cap in place. Got it. Great. Well, thanks for explaining that, Peter. Yep. All right, Peter, Julian, thanks for taking us this this, uh, this whirlwind of of of, uh, of provisions in uh, private credit agreements. You know, we, we, it, it, as always, it's incredibly elucidating, Peter. And um, you know, we'll be uh, looking forward to having you on again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it myself. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. See you next Friday.